Good morning, my sir. Yes, sir. I would just put it in there. All right, it's on. Okay, check one, two. Is it good? All right. in. Sound check on my thing too. So that's how it'll be when preaching. Okay. All right. And for communion, what is that like? Like that? Okay. All right. Great.
I'm good on my mic. Joel is the pastor of church planter for New Creation. Um, you can say anything you want about that. I'll leave that. But some of you have met him because they've been worshiping with us on second Sundays, and he's going to preach for us today. So welcome and thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Good morning, Spring Run. It's great to be here with you. Um, I do want to take a note just to say thank you to, um, to Andrew and to Brian, to all the staff of Spring Run, to the session and the people here. It's really been, um, it's been wonderful to um, be here um, to be here once a month. We have enjoyed a lot of, um, a lot of support from this church, a lot of enthusiasm. Um, so I, um, I'm really grateful. So thank you for that. Um, now, you all have been in a sermon series on the book of Acts. Um, I'm here as kind of a coda on that series of a postscript, uh, an addendum, the very end of it. Um, what you've been hearing about is about how God has used very ordinary men and women to spread the good news of Jesus following his resurrection and his ascension to build communities that testify to Jesus' life-giving power. Sometimes they meet great resistance in that. We're going to see that today. 
We're going to skip ahead a little bit in the book. I don't know where you were last, but we're going to be in Acts 22 today. Paul had come back to Jerusalem. He was warned the whole time, don't go back. It's not going to go well for you. But he does it anyway. Soon he was falsely accused by the Jews that were living there of defiling the temple and teaching the people against the law of Moses. So they seized him, they dragged him outside of the temple, and they started beating him. They would have killed him right then and there, but the Roman authorities intervened. But rather than rescuing Paul, they arrest him. Now he's the prisoner. He's bound and he's in, cha- he's in chains. He's being carried off to jail. On the way to jail, he gets the attention of the Roman tribune and he asks to speak to the people. Now what do you think he's going to say? If you had the chance to speak directly to someone who slandered you and hurt you because of your faith in Christ, well, what would you say? We're going to find out today. We're going to learn from Paul. We're going to be taught by him the way that he speaks to the people, the way that he carries himself. We're going to learn how to carry ourselves in a world where there is hostility to Christ. So read the passage with me. Turn in your Bibles on your devices, your physical Bibles if you have them, or look up at the screen. We're going to start in chapter 21, verse 39. We're going to go through 22, verse 31. Church, this is God's word. It's entirely trustworthy because he is entirely trustworthy. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he, the tribune, had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Galamiel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you 
to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I ask you by, by the name of your promises, please come and work in our hearts. Make, make your word living and active in our hearts. Bear good fruit. You've promised that your word will not go forth without it bearing fruit. So Lord, do that in these folks, do that in me. Help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, it was a long passage. I hope you hung in there. Jesus said that his disciples would face opposition on his account. It's not a matter of if, but when. It might come when other people see you centering your life on Jesus. It might come when you invite someone else to center their life on Jesus. When it comes, how will you respond? For Paul, this moment of fierce opposition is an opportunity to be faithful to Jesus. And it's possible not, just, not because he's super smart, not because he's some trained orator, not because he has ice water running through his veins. Paul was an ordinary man. It happens because Paul is abiding and resting in Christ, his Savior. Now, I want to highlight three aspects of Paul's response, three things that we see here about how to be faithful in the face of opposition. It comes down to three words, courage, charity, and clarity. Courage, charity, and clarity. First, we are called to have courage to speak up. Paul asked to address the crowd. We might miss this. We might skip right over it if we're not careful. In the face of misunderstanding, mistreatment, false accusations, actual harm to his body, he wanted to interact with the people that opposed him. The easy route would have been to just let the Roman authorities take him away. He could have told them, look, these people are crazy. I'm a citizen of this country. They can't do this to me. You guys need to protect me from them. Let me explain to you the whole story. But instead, he asked to address the crowd right then and there. Paul believed what God had said about him. Look at verse 15 again. God spoke to him through Ananias and said, you will be a witness to everyone of what you have seen and heard. For Paul, this is an opportunity. He sees, it as a, he sees it not as something to escape, but an opportunity to embrace, to step into his calling as a witness, even though there would be blowback, just like God had already told him. Look at verse 18. They will not accept your testimony about me, even though he knew it wouldn't work. Sometimes speaking up is risky, but it must be done. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a sermon in 1967. He began it in this way. 
I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join you in this meeting because I am in deepest agreement with the aims and work of the organization that brought us together. The recent statements of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart. And I found myself in full accord when I read its opening lines, a time comes when silence is betrayal. Now, what do you think he's talking about? If you're thinking civil rights in America, you're actually wrong. He's talking about the Vietnam War. The title of this speech was Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break the Silence. It was not his first denunciation of the war in Vietnam, but it was his loudest and it was his clearest. And this speech cost him dearly. The day after he gave it, 168 newspapers denounced him. President Johnson ended his formal relationship with him. The NAACP criticized him. Just let that sink in. One year to the day of giving that speech, he was shot by a cowardly assassin. Now, Dr. King could not have known what the fallout would be from that speech, but he was warned. He was warned. Just like Paul, some of his closest advisors told him not to give the speech. They said, Dr. King, don't do it. But as he said, his conscience left him no other choice. The same thing was true for Paul. He spoke up to be obedient to Jesus. Christ had called him to this. He had put this calling on his life. Paul knows that this moment is an opportunity to follow through on that calling. Just like he wrote in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He spoke up because he knew that he had a message that these people needed to hear. No matter how much hatred or violence they brought against him, they were still people who needed forgiveness and redemption. They needed what Jesus alone could offer them. Paul writes this in Romans 10. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And he spoke up because he believed that his future was secure. Just like he wrote in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Christian, when you face opposition, when you face that moment where you can tell there's a tension in the air between what you believe and what someone else believes, do not ask God if you should speak up, but when you should speak up. There is a silly idea that's been, that's been circulating among Christians and among the church for many decades now that people will be convinced to put their faith in Jesus simply by watching us be Christians. That is not biblical. Being an effective instrument for God's redemptive work requires us at some point talking about Jesus. Sometimes we think that everyone around us, all of our neighbors, our coworkers, everyone that we look at, that they've already heard the gospel clearly, that they've already been invited to respond with repentance and faith. We think that that's true of everyone, but it's not true. Friends, it's not true. Many, many people don't know the message of the gospel. They've never been invited to respond to the gospel, to respond to Jesus with repentance and faith. They need to hear you have a message that's important for people to hear. 
Your future is in God's hands, and that gives you the courage to speak up. The second thing we learn from Paul is this. This is also very important. We're called to have charity in our posture. Charity in our posture. This is sprinkled throughout the text. I'm going to walk through it quickly. Remember, now, everything that I read you, remember, Paul is standing with chains on his hands and bruises on his body, talking to people. He's looking at the faces of people who are seething, breathing out threats, people who want him dead, literally, right then and there. They want to be the ones to do it. And yet, when he opens his mouth, he addresses them in a certain way. Look at verses 1 and 2. He calls them brothers and fathers. In this culture, this is a highly respectful and deferential way to address a crowd. And then he speaks in the Hebrew language. Here again, this is deferential, but it leaves him vulnerable. The authorities were Greek speakers. The Roman authorities were Greek speakers. When he converses with them in Hebrew, they can no longer understand what's happening. They can't adjudicate for him. He is leaving himself more vulnerable in order to speak in the native language of the people. And then Paul works very hard to establish common ground between himself and his enemies. Look at this, verse 3. He gives an account of his upbringing. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city. He says, I'm ethnically Jewish. I'm not a convert. I've got deep roots here in Jerusalem, the heart of our faith. And he notes, I was educated at the feet of Galamiel. That's the most respected rabbi in that, that entire era. That's like being, being, being taught by Tim Keller or something. John Piper. It's a very well-respected teacher. Paul was one of his students. Paul says, I was zealous for God as you are this day. His education, he says, it produced a deep longing within me. A, zealous for, a feeling of zealousness for God. I want him to be worshipped rightly. He says in verse 4 that he persecuted the way to the death. What he's saying here is, guys, I was the real deal. I was a bona fide Jew, a passionate Pharisee. I understand how you feel. I understand what you want. You want God to be worshipped rightly. You believe that I am denouncing God, that I'm a heretic. I was just like you. In fact, I was so earnest in wanting God to be worshipped correctly, I was out killing people, hauling them off to jail, just like you're doing to me right now. At this point, the crowd might be thinking, all right, Paul, we're listening. All right, go on. Then Paul gives his conversion story, and he tells it in a way that connects with his audience. Look at verse 6. A great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul. This phrasing is intentional. For someone familiar with the Old Testament, a light from heaven and the repetition of a name, that's how all people, well, not all people, that's how many, many people in the Old Testament encountered the, the one and true God. So he's saying, see, it happened just like it did to the people in the Old Testament. Then he brings up Ananias in verse 12. He doesn't call Ananias a disciple. That, wouldn't, that word wouldn't have made any sense to, his, uh, to the crowd there. Paul calls him a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. He's making Ananias more favorable to his audience. Paul says that Ananias told him, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one. The God of our fathers, the righteous one. Here again, that's Jewish language that's connecting with his audience. And finally, 
In verse 17, he says I re- he, that he returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple and he fell into a trance. A vision in the temple is again how God spoke to God's people in past generations. Do you see what he's doing? He's trying everything possible to make every connection he can with his audience. Their accusation is that his faith and his teachings about Christ are disobedient to God's law. Think about how easy it would have been for Paul, the converted Pharisee, the former scholar. It would have been so easy for him to just rip them over the coals. To say, your law-keeping is hollow self-righteousness. Don't you understand that? He could have opened up the scriptures and been like, see, you were wrong about this. You were wrong about this. You were wrong about this. You misunderstood this. You're so dumb. Don't you get it? You're so stupid. But he doesn't do any of that. He's building bridges, connections with his audience. He looks out and he sees people that were just like he was. Misunderstanding God's word. Seeking righteousness in a way that doesn't actually produce any righteousness. He says, just like you, I was raised to respect God's law and God's temple. And just like you, I urgently struggled for faithfulness in myself and in my community. But then God revealed something to me. And he did it exactly the way he revealed things to our forefathers in the past. He's not trying to appease them. He's trying to persuade them. This is the guy who wrote in, 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 in his letter to the Romans how deeply in anguish he was because of the unbelief of his countrymen. He wrote this, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul had shed many tears waiting for this moment. May it be so for us. When we face opposition, we we are called to have charity, and that means putting ourselves in their shoes, understanding that, that, but for the grace of God, that's us. That's us opposing Jesus. A few years ago, I was, with, I was with one of my daughters in a store. And we were standing together and about 20 feet away, we both looked up and we saw someone do something wrong. I won't say what it was. They did something wrong. My daughter kind of tugged at my shirt and said, Daddy, how could they do that? And I kind of furrowed my brow. I looked down at her and I said, how could you say that? You, you literally did the same thing like three months ago. <laughs> and she goes, oh. She looks up for a second and then she looks back at the person and her whole countenance had changed. There was no longer scorn. How could they do that? There was sympathy. There was connection. An entirely different posture because she was reminded You did the same thing. This is what's happening for Paul right here. That's why he shed tears for his countrymen. He says, I I understand what you're going for. You're going after it in the wrong way. I'm desperately trying to tell you, don't be like I was. Be like I am now. Find everything that you were looking for in Christ. 
And he's working very hard and withholding all of the darts and arrows he could have slung at them in accusation. Accusations that would have been true, but he holds them back. Remember, church, you were saved by grace alone, not by your smarts, not by your hard work. You didn't figure something out to come to Christ. God opened up your mind. He illuminated your mind to see Christ for who he is, to see yourself for who you are, and to run to him in repentance and faith. God did that for you by his grace. The people that oppose you, that's what they need. Don't scorn them. Remember that that was you before the intervention of God. As we do this, we're going to ask more sincere questions. We're going to be more sympathetic. We're going to be saltier. We're going to bring more light to this world. Now, there's one more thing. The last thing here that we, that we learned from Paul is that we have got to have clarity in our allegiance. Clarity in our allegiance. I'm going to be brief on this. Even though Paul had highlighted several ways in which he could relate to and connect with his audience, he could have just left it there, right? They could have held hands. They could have sung by the fire. Would have been a nice moment. Nobody would have heard the truth about Jesus. Paul chose to be clear about something that was significant that they did not have in common, who Jesus was. In this speech, go back and read it sometime, Paul calls Jesus Lord four times. That's going to raise some flags to his audience. In verses 7 and 8, Paul says it was Jesus who appeared to him with light from heaven and in the temple. That's not going to win him any friends. In verse 16, he says that forgiveness of sins happens by calling on Jesus' name. That's going to trigger them. And in verse 21, he says that salvation is through Jesus and that this is for all nations. That's really not going to fly. If Paul were interested just in getting the crowd to his side and eliciting sympathy or getting the accusations dismissed, this was the worst thing that he could have said. He should have left all this part out. You can tell that Paul didn't have a lawyer with him. You ever seen a lawyer and and somebody accused at like a press conference? And the person accused just can't help him or herself and steps up to the mic and starts talking. And the lawyer's like, my, my client doesn't mean these things that he says. That, Paul needed a lawyer right here if he was supposed to just protect himself. Think about this. Paul is threatened on every side. If the crowd gets him, he loses his life. If the Roman authorities get him, he loses his freedom. If he just shuts up about this whole Jesus business, all his problems go away. If he just leaves out the part about Jesus being Lord and Savior of the world and that all other paths to God are dead ends, he's a free man. Free from harassment and persecution. On the other hand, if he says who Jesus actually is, all his problems get worse. But Paul's allegiance is to Jesus. He knows that making connections is only part of the work. In order for him to be faithful, in order for him to be used by God for redemptive work, he's got to be clear about who Jesus is. So let me paraphrase Paul here. He's saying, Jesus is the light from heaven who came and fulfilled the law of God. This is why we who believe in him no longer follow the Mosaic ceremonies. Salvation and forgiveness comes from calling on his name, and this is available for anyone in any nation, anywhere. In the face of dismal public opinion polls, 
in the face of threats against his well-being, actual threats against his, his freedom and his life, Paul speaks up. Paul knows that his Savior was also harassed and persecuted, that his Savior did not give up, never took the easy way out. To the very end, he spoke the truth about God and about himself, was put on the cross for it. Because Paul belongs to this Jesus, the one who completely fulfilled his redemptive mission with all righteousness, the one who now lives to make intercession for those who belong to him, Paul knows that he has all the approval that he ever needs because he belongs to Christ. That's why he does it. Paul knows that the Father now looks at him and he says, this one belongs to me. I see Christ's righteousness clothing him. He is accepted, he's forgiven, he will never be cast out. He will never face danger alone. He will always belong to me, the Father says. And someday I will bring him home to be where I am. This approval, God's approval, means infinitely more to Paul than all the approval that any man or woman could ever give to him. That's why he's clear about his allegiance. Paul rejoices in God's approval of him. He basks in it. He sings about it. He serves others through it, and he proclaims Jesus boldly because of it. He does this with peace in his heart because he knows something, something that he writes in Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Christian, if you're wondering, how could I possibly respond like Paul? What if I'm rejected, mocked, scorned, reviled, cast out of friend groups, not invited to things anymore? What if it gets worse? What if I lose my job? Remember, you already have all the approval that matters. You have God's approval through Jesus, your Savior. If you belong to Christ through repentance and faith, then you are a co-heir with him of a glorious future that can never be taken away. You're an adopted child of the King. Jesus is not ashamed, no matter what happens to you, not ashamed to call you brother or sister. You are secure and you are loved. That's how you can face opposition on account of Christ. By abiding in Christ and resting in his approval of you. This is what propels all, all of us forward. This is what propels me forward. Despite my frailties and my fears, my weaknesses. Christ's approval of me. This is how you can respond faithfully to opposition. By knowing that he will never reject you. Spring run, may the Lord help us. Help all of us to respond faithfully to opposition. May the same spirit that was at work in Paul make us courageous to speak, charitable in our posture, and clear in who we are allied to. And may God get all the glory, no matter whether the outcome of the conversation is good or bad, no matter whether good things happen to us or bad things happen to us. May God get all the glory. Pray with me. 
Lord, there is so much in your word and in the book of Acts that is challenging to us. What amazing courage Paul showed as he, as he looked at people who wanted to kill him. As he was weak in his body, bruised, beaten. Lord, we know that the truth is, is that Paul did not get there by himself. He got there because he was resting in you, because he was filled with your spirit. Lord, the same thing is true of us. Help us to walk out our faith, to really live in the reality that we belong to you, that nothing can separate us from your love. Jesus, help us in the inevitable opposition that comes. Help us to respond faithfully. Lord, get glory. Build your kingdom. Call people to you and use us to do it. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.